Join us for the Criterion Institute podcast as Joy Anderson, a global thought leader in business and social change, leads us through a series of discussions, interviews, frameworks, rants, and reframes that will help you better understand how to use finance as a tool for transformative systems change. I am Joy Anderson, and this is the Criterion Institute podcast. I've often said that my life's work in system change has been largely driven by relationships. Relationships with people from different sectors, different disciplines, different countries and cultures, people who've invited me into their worlds, which helped me understand how those worlds work and the systems that drive them. People who've helped me make connections between ideas that I wouldn't have seen on my own. In today's episode, we'll explore the power of relationships. First, we'll talk about how all relationships begin with an invitation. Second, I'll share some of the insights that I've had about a longtime friend and colleague, someone who I consider a master of relationships, Suzanne Beagle. She has a power to tell stories of diverse fund managers and entrepreneurs, ensuring that those stories reflect the extraordinary value those actors bring to the finance sector and the world at large. Over the next year, I'll reflect a few times on what I've learned from my amazing friend, Suzanne Beagle, who's left a mark on my life and many others. Finally, We'll end with how we all have the power to choose the stories we tell. You know those weddings that you went to that were a disaster? Do you tell the story of the disaster? Or do you tell the story of the poignant moment where happiness reigned? We choose. We choose which story we tell. And in that, there is power. I want us to play with the idea of celebrating the people who don't come to our events. An interesting idea, right? We, when we host a party, we spend a good bit of time inviting people, getting them excited about a party. And then you have that last minute moment on Saturday night when you think, I did invite people and they are going to show up, right? Like people are going to come to my party. They genuinely like you when neurotic moments run afoul. And then delightfully, the party starts and hopefully people actually show up. Same thing happens in organizations when they're focused on an event that they're hosting. And the goal is let's get people to come to our event, whether it's a conference that somebody is hosting or a dialogue or frankly, just a meeting where you're trying to get things organized. We focus on the relationship between the invitation and attendance. And then we do the second piece that I'll, I'll tell you later why it's a little problematic. We then follow up with the people who attended, right? So we focus on getting people to our event, and then we focus on the people who attended the event because that's who we present the follow-up to. Because there is an assumption that if people don't come to your event, your party, it's because they're not interested. When Criterion first started 20 years ago, we hosted a series of conversations on Sunday afternoons. And they actually lasted four hours. 
We did a world cafe where people would sit around and be in small dialogues. And it was just a lovely afternoon, just lovely. Just met amazing people in this process. And we would talk about what's more important than hope. Where do we need more hospitality? These sort of yummy conversation topics where people would just dig in and explore how different people think. But the key thing that we learned here is we would put out an invitation and then we celebrated everybody who said no, partly because it meant we didn't have to pay for their dinner, but also because it was the beginning of a relationship and we could invite them to something else. We could have coffee with them. People would say, oh, I'd love to come to that conversation on Sunday afternoon. In fact, Betty would also be really interested in this. Let me introduce you to Betty and invite Betty. And then Betty would say, oh, I'd love to come to that conversation, but that's my kid's soccer day and I can't come on Sunday afternoon. But you know who'd be really interested in this and so and so. And a whole set of connections and conversations would be created out of the invitation. And so relationships begin not with attendance, but at the point of the invitation. Our value around the power of invitation, it's that process of inviting that begins the relationship, not the event. Because here's the trick. If you make it about attendance at a particular event, it also puts all the pressure on what can get accomplished in that event, not what can you do to reinforce the invitation to add layers of what this experience might be, not just the event, but what are you inviting people to? Because you're never just inviting people to an event. You're inviting people to an adventure, a broader process of discovery, the potential for them to invest in your fund, whatever it is. It's not all about that event. That event is an excuse to invite. So if we reframe events as an excuse to invite, and then remember that relationships begin with invitations, then everybody we invite is important. Everybody who comes to the table, we can continue to explore, which lets us also address issues like, did they feel welcome at that event? Or do they need a different way to feel engaged? How do I build a relationship that isn't just about what's happening at that meeting, conference, dialogue, whatever it is? How do we stay open to all of the ways that we can develop community, whether or not on that particular afternoon, in that particular time slot, somebody shows up at your event? This segment continues reflections on hospitality. And one of the queens, so to speak, in the field of gender lens investing, uh, Suzanne Beagle, is one of the great connectors in the world. As I was thinking about hospitality, I started to reflect on her particular brand of hospitality. Her instinct is to convene, to gather. She's uh, often described as a human switchboard. For many years, she was the keeper of knowledge of who was doing what in the field of gender lens investing. And if you didn't know who was doing what, call Suzanne and she'd give you a rundown. 
And she's done this in multiple fields. Before the focus on, on gender lens investing, she worked in impact investing. And I remember her standing on the stage in investor circle or gatherings of investors, and she would hold a space for entrepreneurs to be heard by investors. She would stand on the stage, she would be wearing clothes that were made by the entrepreneurs that were doing great work around the world, or she would be wearing the jewelry or the shoes or the hat or the bag. She was a walking brand for these social entrepreneurs who were doing remarkable things. But I think what really is unique to her style of hospitality is that she remembers the details in the story. She listens for them. She hears them. She can retell the stories that that person told about what they were trying to do in their business. This is actually not a skill that I have. I've, <laughs> the number of times I've forgotten, you know, the woman who does the thing with the stuff is largely what I land on after I've talked to an entrepreneur. I think I'm just not I don't know. Maybe it's a failing, but it, it's it's not my it's not my skill. But it is Suzanne's. To her, getting the details of the story right is hospitality. It's very important to her that names are spelled right, that they are pronounced right, that the details of what the stage of the business is and who they're trying to serve and how they're doing that is clear. And she's an investor, right? So if she's lit up about a story, she tells it over and over and over to be able to build support for the company, to build a community around the entrepreneur. I can't tell you how many times she's introduced me to somebody with a short email saying, here is this glorious company that you should pay attention to led by this amazing, most often woman. It's remarkable. Some people can't see past their own story. They're too busy with their own grand narrative. Suzanne's story is one of connection and catalyst. She does that by telling accurate stories that honor the specifics of the one whose story it is. And through that specificity, through that active appreciation for what they want their story to be, she can tell stories without appropriating them. She connects to people through the accuracy of the details in the stories as a particular form of hospitality. Now, if she had gone into politics, this would have been genius. It could have been name dropping at cocktail parties, remembering all of the various political actors and who they were connected to and why. But instead, Suzanne has channeled this through the fierce advocacy for entrepreneurs around the world who are creating amazing things through their businesses. It is a truly glorious form of hospitality to be intent in how you accurately and with precision tell the story that others have told you so that they can be more connected in the world.
we can choose what stories we tell about our lives. But how we tell those stories, um, I often think about my wedding and I remember a, a glorious party. Uh, but the story my father often tells is that they didn't eat his herring or gravlax or whatever it was. And my invitation often to people is to say, choose what story you want to tell. Because there's a power in that to define our own narratives. So this story was my attempt to reframe in the moment what was happening to me. And I offer it because it was powerful to be able to choose the story I tell. So on October 20th, it was right after Gender Smart in London and about 10 of us had traveled to Suzanne Beagle's house in Kent to spend a weekend together as sort of this amazing celebration after Gender Smart of the leaders in the field of gender lens investing kind of coming together to be in community with each other and to celebrate all that had just happened. And so on the first day, I was taking a nap after a long week and was waking up in time for dinner. And I woke up to an email, I believe it was, from my bookkeeper who said, okay, so I paid it. Here is proof that I paid the wire. And I looked at it and I thought, well, what wire? And it was a confirmation of a wire for $120,000 going out from our Bank of America account that I had not approved. And it turns out that we were victim of a extraordinarily skilled phishing scam where somebody had taken over my email account, taken over several other people's email accounts, orchestrated a whole chain of emails and deleting emails and targeting a time when I was in London and not maybe paying as much attention to what was going on. And lo and behold, $120,000 was sent to a bank in Utah to the name of a company that we had never heard of. My first reaction, and I think this is true of many leaders, was not anger, but shame. I dug through my emails trying to figure out how I had done this. I assumed that I had done something stupid and never paid close enough attention. I'm not good enough at this finance thing. How come I don't pay enough attention? Why am I off traveling the world? Why am I not attending to my precious organization? And why can't I pay attention closely enough to these finance systems? How can I continue to fail? The good news was, um, well, sort of immediately upon seeing this email, I called my bookkeeper and said, Kristen, I don't know who this is. I didn't approve this. It looks like I didn't send you the email confirming this. It looks like this has been a scam. And um, we immediately called Bank of America and they could do nothing, it appeared. They kept telling us it would take 24 to 48 hours to be able to file the claim that this might have been fraud. And we thought, why? Why can't you do something? We just sent it. Can't you get the money back? We just sent the money. Why can't you get the money back? We just sent it. Can you get the money back? And so that was basically the refrain for several hours on the phone to Bank of America and then to Zion Bank, where the money had been sent saying, please, 
Why can't we just did this? I'm, I'm sure that you guys haven't actually posted all this money yet. Why can't you reverse it with continued sort of increased desperation? And as I was sort of falling apart here, pacing upstairs in this house in Kent, as it was now, luckily that the time zone, it was later and later, but Jackie Vanderbrug was in the house with me and she had been a managing director at Bank of America. She don't actually no longer was at this moment, which we regretted at the moment because as we were trying to get through to Bank of America, it would have been very helpful if she had actually been active. But she started making all kinds of phone calls and she called throughout the system of Bank of America figuring out why can't we get through? Why can't we contact somebody? And so five hours later, many hours of calls to this bank in Utah, finally just decided to go to sleep. Although the last thing that happened before I went to sleep is that Jackie wrote an email to the president of the retail bank at Bank of America saying that a good friend was in a crisis and that this was an important organization, Criterion Institute, and that would she please do something to support me through this process. As I woke up the next morning and came down to face 12 leaders who had <laughs> been watching me in various stages of complete breakdown as this $100,000, $120,000 just disappeared from my life. I spent some time figuring out what story I wanted to tell. How did I want to say to these leaders, what did I want to say about this? And so the first thing I wanted to say is that my beautiful organization was a victim of an intentional, insidious crime, and that I refused to blame myself. While clearly there are things that we can do to protect ourselves from future crime, it is not my fault that I was a victim of a crime. Second, Jackie Vanderbrug, the story for me that night was yes, of frustration and pain, but it was the fierceness of this woman. It was something to witness. Jackie and I have been friends a long time. She worked at Criterion for about eight years, and we've been through a lot together. But she stood by me and fought like it was her fight, that it was personal that it was about friendship, and that this is what you do. You fight for each other. The third thing was a story about service and empathy. In the midst of this night of hours and hours and hours and hours and hours engaged with this financial system, in the midst of the night, I was on hold. Not sure what exactly what it was, but I was on a call for 50 minutes with somebody named memory. We were trying to connect to Zion Bank and see if we could bridge a phone call between Bank of America and Zion Bank. And if we thought if we could do that, then Bank of America could tell Zion Bank directly. And so memory stayed on hold with me as we were on, on hold with Bank of America, seeing if we could connect them into this phone call. And she stayed with me for 50 minutes. There wasn't much she could do. 
There were like lots and lots of banking rules that meant there was limited power that she had. But she stayed on that phone and there was a level of empathy that was mind-numbing. The fourth lesson is about the power dynamics around time. What was so crazy-making about this is that they targeted a regional bank. And so Bank of America sending money to a regional bank in Utah. And the reality is regional banks don't do wires themselves. They outsource wires to somebody else. And so I knew, because we actually have another bank account with a regional bank, I know that they don't send them out immediately. I know that there might be hours or a day or multiple days before that wire gets approved and sent out. But I kept being told it would be 24 to 48 hours before we can file that. And then when I did get through to somebody and they did file it, I was told it would take 30 to 60 days to resolve the issue. Okay, this was $120,000 of a small nonprofit. Uh, You know, it took us some figuring out what to do to say, okay, how do we manage if we don't have this money for 60 days, let alone if that didn't work, how to file insurance. And so technology can alert in an instant. And in the end, that is what happened. Bank of America did instantly alert Zion Bank and Zion Bank did instantly put a hold on the wire. And so technology can work in an instant. But so often in finance, the timeframes that we communicate in are worst case scenarios to be able to predict, don't count on this. And so hearing 24, 48 hours, 30 to 60 days in the midst of a crisis was a power dynamic that I couldn't break through. But it's urgent to me. Well, we have processes, but it's urgent to me well, but there are processes, but it's urgent to me. Finally, the real grounding that I had that morning was about resilience of the friendship. You know, the resilience that comes from our friendship with Jackie, comes from our amazing tech guy, Todd, who actually knew a ton about this and was immediately able to sort of work through and protect the organization of our organization's maturity, which meant that we actually had $120,000 in a bank. That doesn't happen that often. Like at some point there was a bunch of money in a bank and we had insurance, right? The resilience of being able to know that one more time, pain in the butt that it is, but one more time we could recover. We could bounce back and resilience is painful. It's no fun. Being resilient is about being punched in the gut and still being able to move forward past it. It's nothing to celebrate most days. But because there is so little safety in our world, because we face hardship, and therefore, resilience is necessary. So as I sat downstairs with this group of amazing women and told my story the way I wanted to tell it, Not as a story of failure, not as a story of shame, but as a story of resilience and empathy and friendship and a clear analysis of power dynamics throughout the whole thing. As I told that story, I could claim my own power in the moment. And in that moment, to a person, everybody said, we got your back.
you need a line of credit, we'll make you whole. We'll figure out, no matter what happens here, how to ensure that Criterion, precious cargo in this world, that this organization I've spent 21 years building would not be harmed by this crime. So the good news is, in the end of this story... Uh, We did get a vice president from Bank of America who called the next day and because of connections, and this was certainly an exercise of privilege and the ability to navigate the system. We had somebody who paid attention and pushed the issue, and we had the money returned in 10 days. No matter what, the alert had gone out immediately, and so we would have eventually gotten it back, but it was facilitated (laughs) by our friends at Bank of America for which I am very grateful. And so in the end, we did get the money back. But what I remember from that story is the power of making it mine. Deciding that this wasn't a moment of shame and failure where I had to announce the criterion was hit and weakened. Instead, I could ground in the moment of friendship and empathy and resilience and know that we could walk through this one more time. To learn more about our work, visit us at criterioninstitute.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your reviews help our podcast reach a wider audience. Thanks for listening.